Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may hear this. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and today is episode 300 in our Bible Bites as we continue reading through God's Word this year. Today my reading is found in Luke chapter 8 and 9. Both of these are fairly long chapters and they are so rich. So I will endeavor to the best of my ability to hit the highlights and get us through them. But please know that it is a tremendous challenge because there's so much in these chapters to really stress and to bring out from the heart of God for you. So let's begin. Chapter 8, verse 1, the one point I wanted to make here is it talks about Jesus going through the various cities, and it says, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And sometimes we miss that, and we don't always think about what that is really telling us. But what focus, what it focused on me was that we have glad tidings to bring. Jesus had glad tidings to bring. The gospel of Jesus and his life ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to God is good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. It's good news for the world. His good news is that we can have peace with God. We can be clean before God. We can be free. We can be delivered free of all addictions and torments and bondages. We can be healed. We can be made brand new. The old gone and the new have come. This is very good news for every single person. And I hope that it blesses you today to focus on that. Jesus brings good news. Hallelujah. Going on, we see that not only did men serve him, not only his 12, there were other men and there were other women also. He had several women that served him as well and supported and worked in his ministry. Next, he comes to this parable of the sower, and, um, and then also he explains in the middle of that the purpose of parables. And so the parables are designed to reveal spiritual truths, things that are true of God and his kingdom and his nature, but do it in a fashion that people can relate to. So, so it's using an illustration. It's using a typical natural thing that we can relate to, to understand deeper meanings that we couldn't understand just um, without these, these similes, these metaphors. So he's using this, and he gives us this parable. Now, we've covered this in other lessons, so I don't want to belabor it. However, I do want to bring out a few things that Luke brings out in stresses that makes the, it, it just, I've got pages and pages of notes on these chapters, I'll tell you. So I'm going to try to run through them. But I did want to point out a few things. The seed is the Word of God. It is the Logos. It is the entire volume of the book. It's the Word of God. And as we read the whole of the book, the Holy Spirit then will uh, use portions of that. As we sow it into our heart, the Holy Spirit will bring the rhema words as needed to us and make them alive. So he tells us about the four different types of soils here, the four different types of responses. Notice 
that when he talks about the very first one, he says in verse um, 5, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Now, I saw something in here that the other gospel writers just didn't emphasize. Luke emphasizes it. They're all writing the same accounts, and they're bringing in different details that give us some deeper understanding. And in Luke's perspective, he brings out that this was the one that it was trampled on. In other words, they heard the word, but they rejected it, refused it, spurned it, treated it with disdain. This represents the fact that it was not a problem with the word, but the problem was with the hearer. They would not believe it and would not receive it, so they left it just laying there. And of course, that opens the way for the enemy to come and devour that word, and therefore it could not work in them the way God intended for it to work in them. Notice, in verse 12, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts because they didn't, they didn't receive it into their hearts. They left it on the wayside, rejected it, spurned it, etc. Lest they should believe and be saved. In other words, they weren't, they weren't willing to reject, they weren't willing to receive it. They wanted to reject it. And so by doing that, they were not able to benefit from the work that this word would have done in their lives had they received it. Then he mentions the rocky ground. These are the ones who hear and receive the word, but it says here in Luke's gospel, they, they lacked moisture. Other gospels talk about how they lack root. And so what happens is the moisture to the plant comes how? It comes through the root system. The roots that are rooted in good soil will draw up water from the soil, and will draw up the nutrients from the soil. And so the, all of the gospel writers are saying the same thing. And these are the ones, the rocky ground, they receive it with joy, but because they have no root, they cannot stand when the storms of life hit them. If you'll remember in another lesson or uh, a, a day or so ago, we talked about the two different houses, and one was built on the rock, one was built on the sand. The storms of life came to both, but which one stood? The one that was rooted, the one that was solid and grounded on the rock. Same thing here. Only those that are rooted in God's word by receiving it and letting it take deep root in them can stand because they are the ones that have the solid base, that root system that keeps them from being um, broken off when the bad storms will come. You can see that in nature, when you look at some of the images about hurricanes and things like that, some trees can stand against it and some can't. And the ones that stand the tallest and the best are the ones that have a strong root system below them. He talks about the thorny ground, those that are choked out, they're strangled. The word is strangled and suffocated and crowded out from them and from working in them because of cares of this life, meaning distractions and anxieties, because of riches, wealth, and wealth pursuits. 
It's not wrong, of course, to provide for our family and to try to set aside uh, savings and other things. Those things are very godly things. But when wealth begins to be our God, that's when it's wrong. When we're starting to pursue things um, that, that take the place of God and we're choking out his word, that's when it becomes wrong. And then the pleasures of life choke out the word. Those desires, those delights, those things that we just want to pursue instead of God or with God, but, but to the point that we choke out God because we don't have enough time and we're giving our time, we're choosing to give our time to these other things instead of God and his word and his pursuits. And then the good ground, those that hear, they welcome it, they receive it, he says here, with a noble and good heart. In other words, welcoming it sincerely into their lives and letting it take root in them and do its good work. And the work that the Word of God does, we can find from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. It tells us it does four things to make us strong and mature and thoroughly equipped. It is good for doctrine, teaching, and proper understanding of God. It's good for reproof, meaning conviction and scrutiny of our lives when we need it. It's good for correction, fixing our problems and getting us back on the right track again. And it's good for instruction in righteousness, giving us guidance in how to live the lifestyle that will honor God and be a reflection of Him. And he says, the good ground is those that receive it, hear it, keep it, guard it, or give it a place of honor and a treasure in their lives, make it a high priority. And then they also bear fruit with patience. Now, I noticed this, and I just want to point this out as we begin to move on. The bearing fruit with patience is we have to mix the word of God that we hear with faith. And so when we do that, it begins to be planted inside of us and begins to work. But just like a seed that is sown in good ground, it takes time for it to develop into a fruit-bearing bush or tree or vine. It's not overnight, and that's where the patience comes in. We bear fruit after we've been able to let that word do its full work and grow to a mature, healthy tree, and then... The fruit comes because fruit is a natural byproduct of a healthy tree. The healthy tree doesn't have to push and strive and, and work. Oh, I've got to bear fruit. I've got to do this. i got to do this. Oh, let me get it. Let me push it out. Let me do this. No, it's nothing like that because it will just automatically bear fruit and blossom and bud when there's health inside the tree itself. Whatever it was designed and created to produce is what it's going to produce. And so the Bible tells us the fruit of the Spirit is the kind of fruit that we bear, as well as works that glorify God, good works that glorify God. Jesus spoke of that as well in Matthew five sixteen. So moving on, his some of his family comes to see him, and he doesn't receive them in the way that perhaps they expected. But I want to point out this to you. Jesus was not excluding them. Rather, he was decreeing that his family is not only limited to blood kin, but rather it includes all those who will hear his words and obey them. 
is interesting to me, and I didn't really realize this until I read this today, that one of his family members who was at this event, it says his mother and his brothers came. One of his brothers was James, the author of the New Testament book of James, and it is in James chapter 1, verse 22 through 27, where James himself testifies of this very thing that Jesus just taught here. And he talks about how we need to be doers of the word, not merely hearers only deceiving ourselves. So James, maybe at this time he may not have been able to receive it. Maybe he felt like this was an insult. I don't know. But later on after Jesus' resurrection, James was restored and became a believer, became a mighty man of God in the New Testament church, and writes about this very same topic here when Jesus had encountered his mother and his brothers. And he wasn't saying it, that they're not my family. He was saying that my family includes all of you who will receive and believe my word and obey it. Hallelujah. In the next few verses, we read about the storm that comes up. Jesus had told them, we're going to the other side. And so then when the storm comes up and they come to him and they say, we're perishing, help us out here. He says to them in verse 25, where is your faith? The question was, he was trying to direct them to the fact that I gave the word. I went to sleep because I gave the word. I didn't have to worry if it was going to be fulfilled or not. I gave the word. We're going to the other side. So why didn't you believe my word? That's what, that's the point he's getting at. He gave the word and that was all that was needed. And so our faith, faith is not faith in faith. Faith is in God and in what he has promised. And we mix that word with our faith. And then we believe and expect him to do what he's promised he will do. <clears throat> he goes to Gad Gadarenes, to the town of the Gadarenes. And he delivers this man from demons that had, um, had possessed him. Now he's got a whole legion of them, which a Roman legion was more than 6,000. And notice the demons knew who Jesus was. They trembled right away and were scared to death. They begged him for permission. They had tormented the man and they drove him into the wilderness, into isolation. They seized their victims at will. And they were petrified of going to this place that Jesus could send them to called the abyss or the pit. And in Revelation 20, verse 3, you will see that Satan will be bound in that pit as a prison. And it must be very bad if these demons didn't even want to go there. And notice that the demons had destroyed the swine when he, was, when he released them to go over there and kill them. But notice in verse 35 of chapter uh, 8 of Luke in verse 35. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The people of the town come out when they hear about it. Notice the result Remember, Jesus was bringing glad tidings. Remember, we read that. The result of Jesus bringing glad tidings to this man was he now had peace, cleanness. He was cleaned up. He was clothed. 
He was sitting at Jesus' feet in gratitude, listening and in favor, with favor with God. And he had a right mind. He was no longer tormented, no longer isolated, no longer restore, uh, destroyed, no longer destroyed. But now he was healed and restored and in his right mind. That is part of the result. That's one example of the result of the good news, the glad tidings that Jesus came to bring. But the town doesn't see it that way. They reject him. Jesus won't stay where he's not welcomed. And so he leaves and he comes back. But notice the man that was healed wanted to, so desperately to go with him. But Jesus tells him, he says, no, you stay here and you go tell the people in this town because they need to be saved too. They need to be delivered. They need to know me like you know me now. And so he said, you go and you become an evangelist for me. You tell them what I've done for you. And so this man did. He turned around and became an evangelist, the best that we know. Jesus returns, and then we have the episode of Jairus coming to him with his 12-year-old daughter. And there was a divine interruption. When Jesus is on his way to go heal Jairus' daughter, there's a divine interruption. This woman that had this bloody discharge, notice for the same amount of time, 12 years, the same time that um, Jairus' daughter was born is the same time this woman's um, issue of blood, bloody discharge issue started. And so for 12 years, this woman has suffered and Jesus heals her. And it's because she was determined. The Bible says that she touched him. That word means she seized on him with faith in her heart. In other words, she touched him. She attached herself, fastened herself to these fringes on his garment, clung to them. Now, why? It wasn't the fringes on the garment, but that's what she clung to because the book of Malachi in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, prophesied that the son of righteousness, the son of God himself, would arise with healing in his fringes, in the corner or the tassels of his garment. And those fringes are given to us earlier in the Torah. We can find out the details about what they meant. But Jesus was the one, and she knew that. She believed that. And she, in doing that act, she was saying, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God that Malachi prophesied would come. And you have the healing that I need. And I'm going to cling to you in expectation and in hope and in faith that you will heal me and you will release to me the healing touch that I need if I will grab hold of those fringes of your tallit because I'm believing what Malachi prophesied about you. And so she was saying that when she did that act. And that's why Jesus stopped and he said, whoa, wait a minute, because lots of people were crowding around him. So he was being touched by different people in terms of just a physical sensation. But, but none of them had that same touch. She had clung to his, she had clung to, clung to his, uh, his, who he was. She knew who he was and she was clinging to the faith and the promise of who he was and what he could do for her. And she attached herself to it. 
She appropriated it to herself and she said, you've got what I need. You are the Messiah. And I believe if I will reach out in faith, you will heal me. And so Jesus did. And it says that virtue went from him or power went from him. That's the word dunamis. Rick Renner describes this as like the might of an advancing army. In other words, it's the ability, might, and force that could accomplish the work, whatever it was that needed to be done when it was sent out. It would do it. And that's what was released to this woman. And that's why she was healed immediately. And that was the result. Another place where we see the result of Jesus' glad tidings here. She's at peace. He sends her away in peace. He settles her mind and her heart from her anxieties and fears. She was cleansed. She was healed. She was restored. And she was set free. Praise God. Jesus brings glad tidings. Hallelujah. So now they go on and he heals Jairus' daughter. The, the daughter had died by this time. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Believe. Only believe. I've got the power not just to heal, but I can raise from the dead. And he did, in fact, do that. But notice the first thing he did when he went in was he put out the naysayers. He put out those that were ridiculing and laughing at him. Sometimes we need to realize that we've got to silence and distance ourselves from those who are trying to keep us from believing God's promise. And so he put those out, and then he raised this child from the dead and gave her back to her parents. Another episode where there was glad tidings and a good result from the glad tidings he brought to Jairus and to his family. Praise God. Then Jesus is coming in chapter 9. He calls his 12 disciples and he sends them out and basically gives them an on-the-job training exercise. So they have to go out now and start putting into practice what he has been monitoring, uh, modeling for them, what he has been teaching them, and what he has been doing. And notice when he did, in a sense here, we could say that he deputized them right here because he gives them power and authority. He gives them the dunamis and the exousia, or in other words, he gives them both the badge and the gun. We might look at it like if it was being a deputy in a law enforcement position, they would receive the badge, which signifies the authority, and the gun, which signifies the ability or the power for them to use that when necessary to accomplish the purpose of the law and order. And so it's a similar thing here. It's not exactly the same. God's not giving them a gun to go out and hurt people. But what he is doing is he's giving them authority. And he's giving them not only the authority, but the power, the dunamis, to accomplish his work and to continue to spread glad tidings wherever they may be going and do the exact same thing for people that he's been doing for people here. And he gives them the power and the authority over the demons and over sicknesses. And so they go out. Now, notice that um, Herod during this time hears about Jesus. And he gets concerned because he's beheaded John. So he thinks that it might be a ghost or something. But I want you to just make a note of verse 9. Because it says Herod seeks to see him. It says, so he sought to see him. That's going to come back up 
and we're going to note, note something about that in Luke's gospel later on because Herod will get his opportunity to see Jesus and we'll find out more about why he wanted to see Jesus at that time. Then Jesus, after they come back, they've been out in ministry. They've been spreading the gospel. They've been healing the sick and casting out demons and they're just flat out tired. And Jesus pulls them aside for a season of rest. You can see that also when you look at this account recorded by John Mark in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 31. But the multitudes hear about him coming back, and they, they, can't, they, they can't seem to, to let Jesus have any rest. And, you know, sometimes we can do that in our churches as well. But anyway, Jesus receives them anyway. He loves them. And so he begins to teach them and do miracles among them until it's late. And there's about 5,000 men there and everybody's hungry. Notice in verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And then Jesus Notice this, the five loaves and the two fish were nowhere near enough to, to satisfy that crowd of people in the natural. It couldn't happen. And that's why they, look, they were looking in eyes of natural and they said, we have no more than. We don't have enough here. It's not enough. But notice that in verse 16, Jesus took what they had and blessed what was given to him. And when he did that, it was more than enough. They ended up with 12 baskets full left over. It reminded me of Elisha when he questioned the woman in 2 Kings 4. And he says, what do you have in your house? And then God, when God was talking to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 4.2, he asked Moses, what's that in your hand? God simply wants us to give him what we have let him then take it, bless it, and do the rest and accomplish the rest from it. Then we go on in Luke's gospel. He takes us back through this account as we're heading for the Mount of Transfiguration experience. And he asked him, he says, hey, what do people say? Who do they say I am? And so, you know, some, they start telling him Elijah and John the Baptist and prophets and what, whatever. But he says in verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He was talking directly to the ones with him. He said, who do you say I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. In another place, Jesus, the, the son of the living God, the Christ of God, the Messiah, God's promised Messiah. That's who you are. And beloved, every single person must answer that one question in life before we draw our last breath. And your answer to that question determines your eternal destiny. You can be saved and know him as the Messiah, as Jesus, the Savior, or you can refuse him. But you will have to answer and stand before God based on your answer one day. Who do you say that Jesus is? Then he goes on down and he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He is not sugarcoating anything. He tells them there's a cost to discipleship. You've got to deny yourself. 
take up your cross daily. There's a daily element of surrender and obedience. And follow me. Live a lifestyle of obedience and service. But beloved, know this. The cost is worth it. There is a return on our investment that is coming in future days. And it is going to blow our minds how good God is going to be when he rewards us for our service and our sacrifice. It's worth it, but it is a cost that we must bear. Then he goes on and he talks about how some are not going to see death till they see him coming. And Peter, James, and John did see him uh, revealed in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John saw his kingdom coming in the book of Revelation and writes it down for us. And so the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the veil peeled back and his glory shone through. And notice that Luke gives us the topic of what Moses and Elijah, when they joined him, what they were talking about. They're talking about his upcoming death in Jerusalem. And then Peter, after the, the two men, Moses and Elijah, disappeared, or, or maybe before they disappeared, yes, it's before they disappeared, excuse me, Peter jumps up and he says, hey, let me make three booths. In other words, the Feast of Tabernacles represented the coming millennial kingdom, the coming messianic kingdom when Jesus would rule as the king, the son of David on David's throne. And so Peter thinks, well, you know, the kingdom is here now, so let me build y'all's booths for you. In other words, it was an offer. It wasn't a worship thing. It wasn't some um, idolatrous thing that Peter was saying here. He literally thought that this was the time of Jesus coming into his kingdom. And so he was offering to build the booths for them, which is what's represented by the Sukkot, the building of booths in tabernacles. And so, you know, God has to clear them up and say, no, this is my beloved son, hear him. In other words, you know, it's not the time for that yet. You know, that's something else. You just listen to him now and follow him. Jesus continues to go on with them. He prophesies and emphasizes the fact of his upcoming death to them. He teaches them that the least are greatest in his kingdom when there's an argument over who's going to be better than the other and so forth. He teaches them that he has more than just those uh, among him in, the, in his kingdom that are working for him also. He um, Notice in verse 51, he knows that it's now the time. And so he determines that he's on his way to Jerusalem and he acts accordingly without any delay whatsoever. And then he goes on down and they're, they're like, you know, some people didn't receive him, so there's two of them, James and John, that wanted to call down fire on him, and he has to correct them. Do you know what manner of spirit you are of? He says, you do not know. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's why he goes around preaching these glad tidings and bringing them to them. And notice then he encounters these three would-be followers, and he has to correct what their, their philosophy is. One says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, I don't even have a place to lay my head. You know, you still going to come? And then another one says, he calls to him, he says, follow me. And the guy says, well, let me first bury my father. Well, his father had been dead. And this was during the time of when they would allow the bones to 
uh, uh, everything to deteriorate from the body. It was just Jewish custom. And then on the one-year anniversary, they would go in and collect the bones into an ossuary. So it was during that 11-month period or whatever that, that this man was waiting to bury his father. And so Jesus wasn't cruel here. He was saying, no, let the others take care of his bones. You come and you follow me without delay. In other words, don't procrastinate. And then the last one, he says, let me first go and bid everybody farewell who are at my house. And I want to read this to you. Verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, he's telling him, you know, we don't, you, you can't be looking back. We, you've got to be committed and be forward moving, forward looking. Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter 3 in verses 1 through 15. And he says, you know, what things that are in the past, what things that are behind, that's the one thing I do. I forget those and I'm pressing forward. Jesus is in forward motion. There's more to come. There's more to be done. There's more to serve him. There's more work for us to do. There's more to this life in, in the Christian walk. And he wants us to keep coming and keep moving forward and grab all of it that he has for us and do everything he's called us to do. And I'm certainly trying to do that. And I pray you are as well. I hope this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today in Jesus' name.